Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, December 13th. I do have to start today's show with a bit of an apology. I am sorry we did not have an episode for all of you listeners yesterday. For what it's worth, I was traveling back from Florida, got to spend some time with my brother, his college roommates, as three of them, including my brother, were celebrating their 30th birthdays. That said, hopefully all of you got the chance to catch up on all of our podcasts from last week. We had so much fun in a week I called Peaks and Valleys Week here at Cracked Rackets. We talked about some of the disappointments we saw in 2022, but then perhaps in a more glass half full perspective, we talked about the players who either peaked or may perhaps continue to reach towards their peak moving forward as well. Tons of off-season content for all of you listeners, and we plan to continue that theme here this week. Now, of course, throughout the course of any ATP or WTA season, you hear me refer to players as Tier 1, Tier 2, Tier 3 talents. Well, what does that really mean, and which players fall into which specific categories? That, my friends, is the question we plan on answering this week. Another full slate of podcasts, which with an amazing crew of guests, I should say, to break down where we see all of the talents talent sorting out as we move forward in the professional tennis world. Of course, here on today's show specifically, we are going to look at the current crop of Tier 1 WTA talents we see competing out on tour. And as I always say, if you are going to try to tackle such a monumental exercise, you better have some help along the way. Thankfully, I do, as joining me to kick off the week once again is a returning champion here on our mini break podcast. Of course, you essentially know him as a co-host at this point of this show, an editorial producer for Tennis.com, Tennis Channel, an expert on all things tennis and Real Housewives. It's our dear friend, David Kane. DK, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? Doing well. I'm very happy to hear that the listeners have gotten their apology. I still haven't gotten mine from Alex, <laughs> who who knows what he did. That's all I'll say. Yeah, it's very, very fair. It was a fun weekend. I... Because many of the Eric's roommates also played tennis and have thoughts, I suppose, on tennis things. I always offer them to come on the show. They always at first are receptive, but then it's always like, well, what's it actually going to be? And I just quickly realize it'll be a disaster. So that plan always ends up going in the recycle folder or perhaps things to do mid-November next year when we run out of ideas. But It was fun for me to recharge the batteries. I got to record some podcasts in Florida as well. I always view those as away podcasts, and sometimes things my my brain is a bit scattered when I'm not at home base. That said, 
It's nice to get back here. Nice to have you two start out the weekend. I mean, we can get right into it. Shout out, as always, to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. Promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest tennis equipment. By the way, holiday season. Haven't gotten your gifts. You know someone who loves tennis. Shoes, clothing, rackets. Maybe... Would it be a good gift if someone got you a set of strings for your rackets in Christmas time? Like, honestly, not the worst thing in the world. Strings can get sneaky expensive. Getting your racket restrung costs a lot less when you don't have to pay for the strings as well. So anything you're looking for, tennis-point.com. DK, if there was one tennis item you wanted for the holiday season, what would it be? going to say a new set of balls. Let me think of a better answer. <laughs> <laughs> leave that in. Absolutely leave that in. That's a great answer. By the way, you use our promo code CR15. Not only will you get 15% off all sale item, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75, but DK, you will get a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. So those new balls available via that promo code CR15 and Tennis Point. But I don't know. Racket, hoodie, is there anything in specific, specifically I should say, you'd want for the tennis season? We'll start, I've, I've, a, we'll I've start been, a GoFundMe. I've been hanging on to the uh, the 2018 paint shop of the E Zone of the uh, the Onyx Rackets. I've been waiting for something better. I haven't gotten there yet. If I find something more aesthetically pleasing, I'll probably trade up. But in the meantime, I'm sticking with my my old blue and black and blues. Because I know you're someone who would appreciate this. Do you know it's actually Yonix? Have we had this conversation before? Oh yeah. yeah. I took four semesters of Japanese. Of course, yeah. I know it's Yonik Kasu. Yeah, see, you would, he knows the history. I'm trying to make Yonix happen. When someone refers it to me as Yonix, I'll know we'll have broken through. But all right, that's good to know. I'll put it on see, the in, list. In Japan, it's Yonix, and on Long Island, it's Yonix. So that's yeah, and that's and part Michigan, of why I, I pronounce Yannick's. it the way I do. Yeah, Yannick's, Mich- Yannick's. Yeah, the- love Yannix Noah. I'm a huge fan. Great run in the French <laughs> Open. Just fantastic. People accuse me of having a significant Michigan accent. First of all, I don't know what that means as I'm from Significant. There. Yeah. Um, it's the A's. They say when I say cracked rackets or like accent that I really accentuate my A's. Apple. But like how am I supposed to say it? Apple? Like my name is Alex. Like no, it's Alex. I don't know I mean, how I else got- to say it. I got bullied straight out of Florida, so don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, accent talk aside, obviously, again, tennis-point.com. Promo code is CR15. All right, DK. People always poke fun at me when we do these podcasts. Whenever I refer to Tier 1 talents on shows, whether it be you, whether it be Gil, whether it be Ben, whether it be anyone, they always question, how do I define Tier 1 talent? Well, let's define that. For all of you listeners today, and I know I've alluded to this in the past, but the point of this exercise is not to identify who the tier one contenders are for individual events in 2023. The point of today's exercise, it's the off season. Let's do some big picture thinking. Who are the tier one WTA talents as we move forward into what we have called a new era? We talk about the generational shift that's occurred in the WTA. Well, who are the new era talents we have to be on the watch uh, lookout for? And again, how do I specifically define tier one? A tier one talent to me, David Kane and listeners, is a player who I would bet on winning at least one Grand Slam title before January 1st, 2030. So as this decade plays out, I think these players will be 
at the top of the game. I'm not saying how consistently it's going to be. I'm not saying they're all going to rip off EGA 2022-style seasons. I'm saying these players have the Tier 1 talent to answer that ultimate question. Can you win a Grand Slam title? And I am willing to bet on what I've seen from these players, what I've seen in their talent to, to place them in this tier one category. I'll make the argument, obviously, for all of my players today. I asked you to come up with a list as well. DK, do you have any quibbles with my definition? Do you want to guess how long my list of names are? Like, wh- how do you see this exercise? I mean, I have to be honest, the 2030 deadline does make me a little nervous. And in order to explain why, I'll tell you a story. The, 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 the short of it is, is that a lot can happen in a year. Oh, but tell me the long there, story. You know, I only like the long stories. It's an old folk tale about a man who was condemned to die by the king. And the condemned man says, please don't put me to death. If you spare my life, I'll give me a year. I'll teach your favorite horse to talk. And the condemned man's friend says, you can't teach a horse to talk. And the man says, be quiet because a lot can happen in a year. You may die or I may die or the horse may die or the king may die or the horse may talk. All of which to say, a lot could happen in a year. And the fact that we're having to forecast out in the next seven, you know, we think of who's won major titles who have come and gone in the last seven years. I mean, Ash Barty's entire career, both of them, I think, take place within a seven year span. And so having to forecast that far out does make me a little, does give me a bit of consternation, but it's an opportunity perhaps to focus on some of the upcoming talent. I know there is a shoot happening uh, down in Florida concerning a up and coming Chinese player who did very well this year and is certainly everyone's sexy pick to win a couple of majors in the next couple of years. But I, I mean, I wanna start though, with all of that said, with the with the obvious, the player that we have been harping on about for years and years, well, I've been just, talking about. I do before we get into any specific names. First of all, shout out to the anecdote. Because it was exceptional, I have to say. Well, well, a good addition. I do just think it's worth noting as you look at each decade. So, for instance, you know, the 2010s. I'm curious, DK, can you guess off the top of your head how many players won slams? Oh, boy. Um, well, Serena won a lot. Price is is right rules. Serena won 12 in the 2010s for what it's worth. Serena won 12. If you if you had me sit here, I probably could name all of them. But now that I'm being put on the spot, I'm feeling a little nervous about it. But 10 years out of 40, I would say it was about 15, 15, so, 18 women. Which one? 15 or 18? That was my number, 15 to 18. No, no, no. Give me a definitive <laughs> one. Because, I'll say 16. No, 18 would have been a great guess because David Kane, the answer is 19 women. So that's why I was, try- I was trying to get you to just go with 18 because I could hear you leaning that way. Um, Me and the minimum wage, 15 or yeah. 18. So 19 women won slams in the 2010s, just for perspective. Now, that's the most of any decade in WTA history. Maybe the 1930s had more. I could do a quick count to try and – but I'm not going to waste the listeners' time. But, like, you look at it compared to the 2000s when 12 players one slams, or you look at it in the 1990s where uh, you had 13 players win slams. There's no doubt that 2010s was on the higher end for what it's worth. We've had seven players already win slams this decade, so you feel like there might be 
I don't know, five to eight more players who are able to perhaps capture a slam title if the math, and and typically you look at these decades, typically that number is somewhere between, I would say, 11 and 16 is the typical range over the decades. And again, we're already at seven. And another thing I think is worth prefacing as we look at this exercise, and this might get you towards that first name, DK, is that when I look at this tier one WTA talent, I want to be clear, a player can have already won a slam and be included in this list. Like there's no age-specific requirement. Obviously, you're going to lean younger as you look big picture. That's inevitable in this exercise. But the the point of it, Tier 1 WTA talent, do you feel you would bet on this player winning another slam before the end of this decade? With that in mind, DK, now get to the obvious number one. You buried the lead, but it's Arena Sabalenka. She's a player we've been talking about for the last three years. I was still, I was recording podcasts and not even having worked for Tennis Channel yet. And I was still harping on about how Arena Sabalenka was on the precipice of winning her first slam. And if she doesn't do it by 2030, I might actually eat a horse, much less teach it to talk because there is no one with that index of obvious physical talent, obvious technical talent, desire to improve competitive strength, if not always mental toughness, but a, a, de- a definitive amount of competitive strength and willingness to shake off disappointments, mid-match disappointments and hiccups. Someone who I feel like should have already won a Grand Slam already based on who has already won uh, to start this decade, but someone who I think has ended this year, 2022, with as good a chance as possible to finally get the monkey off her back and win her first slam. And frankly, if she doesn't end up with multiple slams, I'll say three to four, by the end of the decade, that would be a bit of an underwhelming turn of events for Sabalenka, just given how much she has brought to the table and how impressive she can be at her best. And obviously, in order to win a slam, you have to be close to your best over seven matches. And that's something she's yet to do. But she's never been closer. So I think that this is the time to really put her at the top of your list. And if she was if I was a betting man, if I was a, <laughs> I am a part of a, a community of betters. <laughs> but if I was a deeper part of that mem- uh, community, I, w- I would certainly bet on Sabalenka. So finally win a slam before the auspicious year of uh, 2030. One of our bonding moments, we were on the Linz Ostrava grind together when Arena Sabalenka Band of brothers. at the end of 2020. That was our bonding moment. It's very <laughs> true. Real recognizes real in that room day after day asking the questions. It was a very, again, I was like, those moment. eyebrows know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I just, I was like, I just need to hear more from David Kane. I was like, there's, I just, I need to hear from him. And behind these questions, there's so much thought. Um, which, anyways, you can hear my excitement now. Thought, uh, emotion, yeah. gesticulation. Does this mean this, by the way, is our two-year anniversary? Did I miss it last month, two months ago? It's been two years since that Osterva yeah, Linz grind. We've been Zooming for two very wow. long years. Okay, yes, <laughs> two very long years. <laughs> um, anyways, another – you talk about Arena Sabalenka. I think a bonding moment around Sabalenka, not just between you and I, but between Jeff Sackman and I was – this idea of Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club, Jeff always says there's a, you know, a the name lock. is too long. No, yeah, it's a working <laughs> title. There's a lock in the owner's office in the country club. And that lock, the combination has never been known. But someday someone will figure it out and they'll open the lock and it'll just be a picture of Sabalenka. And it'll be like, this is actually what Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club is all about. And you know what's amazing? Arena Sabalenka, according to Tennis Abstract, 306 career tour-level matches. DK, what do you think her win percentage is? 
I'm not even 20 minutes in. There's a lot of math so far yeah. on this podcast. Out of how many? She's played 306 matches. Her win percentage, I would say 78. Okay. If it was 78, <laughs> she would be a Hall of Famer already. Yeah. So, but here's the She's thing. She's won a lot of matches. No. So here's the thing. It's two-thirds. She has won 66.7% of her matches. She is 204 and 102 through her, you know, she turned 24 this year. And she is, we've, uh, we have the two-thirds rule here at Crack Rackets, where if you win two-thirds of your matches, what does that mean? It That's means a new rule. No, it's, it, it is a relatively recently developed rule. But it just is an allusion to quarterfinals and why they matter. Because if you win two matches at an event, typically you're making the quarterfinals of every event. And when you're in the quarterfinal championship weekend of things, you're in the conversation. Why I bring all this up full circle is, to your point, through six seasons of WTA tennis, Arena Sabalenka is just perennially, if not on the peripheral, in the heart of the conversation. And to do that six years consecutively, DK, whether it be going back to, you know, 2018, 2019 days where she would have some comfortable results in Wuhan or Shenzhen or Zhuhai, and then obviously the ending of 2020, the slams in 2021, World Tour Finals in 2022, you know, she has gotten, she has been in the final stages of so many big events. And has she made a slam final yet? No. Has she made a, you know, uh, a definitive world number one consistent start to finish, no hiccup season? No. But here's what I keep coming back to. She double faulted 10.5% of the time last season, DK. 10.5%. And she was still unequivocally one of the eight best players in the world. And just, I know this is an eye test thing. Obviously, you can go look at some of the U.S. Open, whether it was the first set against Iga, the win over Pliskova, turning things around against Collins, 6-2-5-1 down against Kanepi. All these different instances were just, she will put together a 15-minute stretch of tennis. Where as a fan, with eyes, as we all are in tennis, you will watch Arena Sabalenka and say, okay, that best is just better than everyone else's. Like, she has that transcendent power. She has that edge about her you need to just say, fuck it. I'm swinging. And I might go down swinging, but at least I'll have no regrets. And, like, you just, through six years, you would know if it was fake or if it's real. And I think all of us can acknowledge those powerful traits are real. I would point to another fact that, again, break percentage-wise, 35.7%. That's that, that would rank for her career. That would rank 25th this season. It's a top 25 number. To be as foundationally solid on the return as she is and to then have the upside as a server where we saw last year in 2021 she held 75.2 percent of the time that was a top six number on the WTA tour when all of these pieces come together it just does feel undeniable DK so like yeah of course I have her on my list I think she has to be there I actually do like the two-thirds rule because I think it's a good way of explaining the fact that for as much as we hyperbolize, rightly or wrongly, the state of the WTA field and how it does seem endless at times, Arena Sabalenka has been a distinct part of that conversation, either when she was playing close to her best or even when she wasn't playing at her best, she was still within playing a prominent role in the WTA discourse. Why isn't she playing as good as she could play? Why is she having troubles with the serve? She could be the one of the best players right now in a way that felt more consistent, even perhaps more than 
perhaps a Garbini Muguruza, who I feel like does become absent from, we didn't, people were not talking about her in 2022 and they, and Muguruza and Sabalenka arguably had equally catastrophic starts to the season, yet Sabalenka felt very much at the forefront. You're someone who has the obvious talent to win a slam and win multiple slams. And I think the Serena comparison is also apt in a way because in some, in many ways, it feels like Sabalenka possesses the firepower that many people kind of think of Serena as having. But Serena, for the real heads, actually know that Serena possesses a tremendous amount of variety of spin. Does not gun every single shot Absolutely. for a winner. That's you know we obviously the elevated tremend- backhand would be the Serena examples. When she's in trouble in that corner, she's firing at twenty feet above the net and buying herself time. Yeah. There's certainly montages to be made of the 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 return winners that Serena hits that are 95 miles an hour that are just spectacular. But actually the variety of the Serena Williams game is what really won her those 23 grand, I almost forgot the number, 23 grand slam titles. Whereas Sabalenka shot for shot is just pounding the ball in a way that frustrates what has become the current crop of top WTA players who rely on spin and timing to get the ball where they want it to be. Your Whether that's your Maria Sakari's, your Iga Shvantec's, even your Ash Barty's in absentia, those players who rely on that versatility. And Sabalenka, when she's playing at her best, can hit right through that. And that puts her in a really good position where as much as she has struggled with nerves over the years, you have to think there's going to come a time where that 15-minute stretch is going to happen at the right time, perhaps maybe next time when she's up 4-2 in the third against Sviantec as opposed to earlier in that deciding set. May have made a big difference, certainly, when you think of uh, Ongebor and sort of her nervy display in the final we could already be talking about Arena Sabalenka as a Grand Slam champion had that 15 minutes happened just a little bit later uh, in the match in the semis. But all that said, I mean, it would, we would be remiss in not opening a podcast about potential and obvious ability without talking about uh, Arena Sabalenka. So yeah. that's, my, that's my stump speech. Yeah, so <laughs> Tune she, in next week when we talk about it again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She wasn't number one on my list, but she was actually the second name I wanted to talk about. So I just I you can't talk about Ben Ben Shelton this week, Alex. It's the WTA <laughs> podcast. Oh, that's where you're wrong, my friend. We managed to sneak him in right here, so there we go. And I, yeah, I, go. I mind you're you into it. Here's the other thing, and I mentioned Tier One Slam by January first, twenty thirty. On January first, twenty thirty, Arena Sabalenka will be thirty-one years old. Thirty-one years old. That is a player who maybe won't be at the peak of her powers, but she won't be done with her prime by the age curve at that point. And given the power tennis Sabalenka is playing, don't you feel like it's a game that should age well also, DK? That's why I think you talked about all of the variables and unknowns which make this exercise so difficult. But again, 31 by January 1st, 2030, the rest of this decade is her prime. I am betting on her prime featuring a Grand Slam singles title to pair, by the way, with the double slam titles she's already won. I mean, that's crazy because I will also be 31 in January of 2030 (laughs) and no one look up anything different. But yeah, I think with and especially with Sabalenka, the fact of the matter is she'll have Five, she'll be. She'll have a whole decade, pretty much, to figure out the biomechanics of the serve, to figure out when's the right time to go for things, to really continue to learn and grow, which is what I always find most impressive about Sabalenka is the fact that she's not someone who gets stuck in a rut. I mean, she had this, you know, famous coaching situation with Dmitry Tursunov. It went south. She made the executive decision to change the team and reshape it the way she wanted to. Having struggles with the serve brings on a performance coach to rework the biomechanics. She is a problem solver, which sort of goes against everything that we think about her game as someone who has only one plan and doesn't know how to diversify. It's someone who is thinking towards this slam and is not despairing when things go 
a little wrong or even catastrophically wrong as they did in stretches of 2022. And that's what always gives me hope that this is not another Dinara Safina situation, another Yelena Yankovic situation where they're just going to hit a wall and regress. Sabalenka has had moments of regression, but she's always managed to push past it and seemingly end the season, most seasons, better than how she started it. So that's that's something to to consider as well. She also has a lot of wins over all of her peers. Like she's beaten Niga, she's beaten Andrescu, she's beaten Rabakina, she's beaten all the Plisakaris, Kantavasia Boers of the world. She's beaten all the players you need to beat to be yeah. there. Now she hasn't strung them all together in a row, but has shown the ceiling to match any player on tour. I agree. Unequivocal tier one WTA talent. The name I thought we were going to start with is Iga Shviantek, and we don't even need to make the argument. It's extraordinarily easy. She's the clear tier one talent, not only through this decade, but obviously entering 2023 specifically as well. She may be the only tier one WTA player, T-E-A-R. Shout out to you for that joke in the pre-conversation to this podcast, DK. But um, look, let's play a game of grossly irresponsible. This is what we get to do here in December. And I know, DK, you'll always endorse me when I'm grossly irresponsible. I've said this number before, or this fact. I'll say it again. She's the seventh youngest player to three Grand Slam titles in WTA Tour history. Why is that seven number important, DK? Well, because there are only seven players in WTA Tour history who have won 10 or more Grand Slam titles. The list, Margaret Court, Serena, Steffi, Helen Willis-Moody, Chris Everett, Martina Navratilova, and Billie Jean King. Again, why is this game grossly irresponsible? We're projecting immense amounts of Grand Slam success for any player is always an unfair burden to place on them. We know how many different things can change. Look at where Sophia Kennan was to end 2020 versus where Sophia Kennan is to end 2022, even as your most pronounced example, or Andrescu Osaka, either thing you want to turn to. But here's the thing. Iga Shviantek is 21 years old. On January 1st, 2030, DK, again, she will be 28 freaking years old in the smack dab heart of her prime. And when I look over the course of the next decade, how well her game translates to three of the surfaces already, and it's worth remembering, she's a junior Wimbledon champion. I would be more willing than not to bet that she'll figure that surface out at some point in her career is Iga, is Iga Fiontek on course to become the eighth player to win 10 or more Grand Slam titles? Again, grossly irresponsible to have this conversation. But I think as fans, it's something we should be excited about. That it's like, yes, we have a generational talent on our hands who, again, could retire tomorrow and be a Hall of Famer, but hopefully doesn't do that and is on course to do just immense historical things and there's a world where this decade is the Ega decade, right? First of all, I should have known that Ega was going to be a part of this conversation when I got a frantic text from one Alex Gruskin a couple of hours before the podcast where I was told I could pick current Grand Slam champions, mm. which was not initially my instruction. I was told to pick initially people who I thought could have the potential to win a slam. No, and that's the, not the true. The implication is that they had not won one yet. This is false. That You you are correct maybe about that implication, but I sh- that's why I wanted to emphasize if you have one. So it's like it's the Medvedev conversation. It really is just applies for the men. It's like Medvedev still has to be in the – even though he's a little bit older, but like – I still think he has another slam in him. So, like, I don't think you can just write him off as a team. I, I want to keep him as a part of the conversation. Anyways, carry on. We can keep it. I'm not defensive, am I? Yeah. yeah a, little, a little bit. I mean, because <laughs> when I think of the future, I feel like Iga is so 
demonstrably the present. I mean, we yeah. have the WTA rankings up right now, and I'm just kind of smarting at the fact that the second place person in the WTA rankings has less than half of the ranking points of Iga Shvili. I mean, it's just, it's very stark to see it in person. I mean, it's funny to be uh, mythologizing a three-time Grand Slam champion and seeing where they can go next, because we just had a three-time Grand Slam champion in Ash Barty at the start of the year. We were similarly mythologizing and trying to place her in, maybe maybe less mythologizing Barty, but certainly placing her in the context of uh, past greats. And sure. I think we, I, I think I, I said that she was sort of in that Martina Hingis conversation and sure enough, she went and retired about like six weeks later. So <laughs> my bad, but for Iga Svantec, we do a lot of joking about the greatest of all time conversation and what an Iga Svantec would need to do to remain in that conversation with, uh, with a bullet. And she really did pretty much all she could do to remain in that conversation in, in, in quite a way. The fact that she won two more slams, she got to number one, had a 37 match winning streak. Yes, barring some major catastrophe, I see her very close, if not past double digits in Grand Slams because she has a lot of what Barty was bringing to the table in terms of frustrating opponents. She has the athleticism, the versatility, the consistency. And I think what Iga has that Ash did not have was that sort of long-term competitive interest in competing. I think, mm -hmm. you know, Ash was very much competitively satisfied when she won that Grand Slam in, in Australia. And I feel maybe there was a part of her that felt, I'm never going to be able to top this. I may be able to win a couple more slams, but this moment right here, me winning this Australian Open, is the peak for me. It's all I ever dreamed of. I did it. Let's move on to something that makes me happier. And I think Iga is very happy when she wins and will continue to be happy as she pursues greatness and pursues more wins. Yeah. So I think that's to, all of which to say, yes, if we're talking about current, current and reigning, Iga is obviously at the top of the list by a little more than double. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, 21 and two against the top 20, 15 and two against the top 10 this year. You want to hear a fun fact? She lost her first match against top 20 opponents slash top 10 and her last match against top 20 slash top 10 opponents. She loses to Barty in the Adelaide one final of uh, two and four. And then she loses to Sabalenka in the world tour final semifinals uh, in three sets. She won very upside down. When yeah, you think she about won it. 15 straight top 10 matches, 21 straight top 20 matches. The unequivocal best player of 2022. She's already put that season together. And again, you're absolutely right to include Ashley Barty and add that context to this conversation. Even then, though, Ashley Barty, born 1996, you know, was going to be 26 years old at the end of this year, even if it was a dominant world number one. Let's say she even wins another Grand Slam title this season, wins that Wimbledon, gets to four titles. Still, 26 years old, she'd be at four. Iga's 21 years old. And she's at three. Like, she is five years younger than Ash Barty. It's just like why, again, I continue to drive this ego not eliminated from the greatest all-time discussion is you just never know when you're going to get a generational talent like this. And for so long, we were wondering, can anyone fill that Serena Williams vacuum? And again, it's extraordinarily early and cultural significance, impact off the court. There are all of these things that will come throughout the course of Iga's career that certainly unfairly to her, whether or not Serena has set the standard for greatness, everyone's going to be chasing that. But from a tennis perspective, as fans, like the generational talent 
is on the board. Iga Swiatek has started the path. And if you can't get excited about that as a tennis fan, I just don't know what to tell you. You mentioned it foundationally from a game perspective. It's just like, what are the flaws? She was top 10 hold percentage, top 10 break percentage, was over 50% break percentage for the majority of the season ends at 49.8 devastatingly. But again, a, a, a generational return season. And you think, well, isn't that forehand return? Can it be a little bit big? Isn't that maybe her weakness? Well, the break percentage suggests no, it's not a weakness. She's exceptional at protecting her serve. You feel like there's nothing more dangerous than Iga sitting with time on the ad side of a court with a forehand because you just have no idea where she's going to go. Her best on clay is just right now clearly superior to everyone else. Like, so even if the hardcourt stuff, the weapons of Sabalenka or some of the other players will get to catch up, you feel like, okay, there's at least four more French Opens on the table. And at that point, she's at seven. Like, again, I know this is grossly irresponsible. If I say the over-under is nine and a half slams, DK, you're taking the over, right? By a little, yeah. Because just based on where she's at, the competition that is behind her. I mean, obviously for Iga, the weakness remains that she can be hit off the court. I mean, Kaya Kanepi very nearly did it in Australia. Daniel Collins definitely did it in Australia. Sabalenka did it at the end of the year in Fort Worth. So there's that. Yelena Stepenko did it in Dubai to kick, to kick off the 37 match win streak. And then she was obviously hit off the court by a notorious power player, Alize Cornet at Wimbledon. Um, no fact checking there either. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, like Sabalenka, and obviously to a better degree than Sabalenka, Iga Shvantec is another problem solver. I mean, she's someone who came into the U.S. Open not happy with the conditions, very unhappy. And so did Paola Bedosa. She was equally unhappy. Paola Bedosa lost in the second round. Iga Shvantec wins the title about as efficiently as you could, given someone who just did not feel she was up to the task of these conditions. And just a year ago, Ash Barty and Craig Tizer were saying that we didn't think that Barty could ever win at the U.S. Open. Maybe maybe because they knew that the end of the line was in sight, but also because they felt the conditions were just completely unsuitable to her game. And so that also gives me hope that uh, grass will be something that Iga solves in the long term, because look at what she was just able to do at the U.S. Open on a slightly less green court. So, you know, it is irresponsible in a way to predict all of this of someone who is so young, seemingly still so impressionable, you know, is with a very close knit team who she seems to rely quite a bit on. You know, we haven't really seen that sort of, um, I want to say proverbial cutting of the purse springs, perhaps. I mean, she does certainly look to the box a lot between points, but it's not, you know, it's not something that's distracting, overwhelming, leading to kinds of, you know, disastrous defeats. She's somehow able to, again, find that inner strength and inner peace and and barrel through some of these tougher matches. And so it's not a concern yet until it is. But in the short term, you know, Iga is on track to really be unstoppable, barring a Sabalenka, barring an Ostapenko, barring even a Kaya Kanepi, having a fantastic day and just hitting her off the court. But the odds of them pulling that together over two out of three sets is much lower at this point than what Ike is able to do over the course of a three-set match. Yeah, Like I said, grossly irresponsible, but I appreciate you indulging me as always in the conversation. Yeah, Iga, the unequivocal tier one WTA talent moving into the decade. All right, I asked you this earlier, DK. How long do you think my list is, by the way? Because Iga said, and Sabalenka are both on both of our lists. I'm curious what your guess is. I mean, I said my list was going to be about X over three. So okay. I'm curious what yours is going to be. I would say, I would guess about 12. Okay. I have more than 12 names to talk about, but I only have eight definitive tier one talents. And so uh, 
Honestly, a great way to do this would be for you to just run off the list for me. Just go, yes, no, no. Well, yeah. Not even so, if it so was a visual podcast, I could just do the thumbs down. I can well, give you the cinema. <laughs> one could argue a good podcaster would have done this with you beforehand, sent you the outline and say what format works better for you, me listing names or you giving me your list. But I say do it live because it's more fun when we have these conversations for the do listeners. They get a look behind the scenes. Exactly. So do you want me to list my eight or do you have another name on your list you feel definitive about that you think won't be on my list that you want to talk about? I mean, she'll probably be on your list, but I could talk about her anyway. All right, talk do about it. I could talk about Jun, Jung Chicken Wen. She is the next name on my list. I knew you'd have her. Make there the you case. go. I mean, she is. She's probably my Ben Shelton in terms of someone who I think <laughs> just has obvious and someone who's proven it That's more great. often on the WTA level, um, and someone who just won, I believe, the Newcomer of the Year award, the WTA mm-hmm. award voted by. You the think it was unanimous? I, which being one of them. <sighs> I mean, it was pretty obvious to me that she was the one that was going to win that one just based on just the buzz. I mean, the next Lena of it all is a little bit reductive, in my opinion. I think there's an argument to be, to be made, perhaps, that Jung Chin Wen is perhaps an even more complete player uh, than Alina, perhaps a bit less emotionally up and down. So far, we've seen a lot of you know emotional steadiness from Jung throughout this season, you know, and, and it only got better as the year went on, you know, put down a really great uh, win over Paola Bedosa. I feel like I'm giving Paola a bit of a, a rough a rough road on this one because I do think she is perhaps, if not uh, definitively tier one, certainly burgeoning on tier one potential after this year. But um, just clear talent from from Jung Chin Wen, just seemingly someone who has a very good head on her shoulders, someone who's making the right steps towards the top, seems to have a good team around her and someone who I think just just reeks of win, in my opinion, just someone like of this next generation. And and I think it's always exciting to look at the next generation of WTA players because that's typically, those are typically players who break through early and often. And so it's it's been sort of a, a, an inverse situation in the last 18 months looking at these younger ATP guys, which is a rare sight. We typically t- suspend judgment on them until they're 20, 22, 23, but usually the, the younger girls are someone that we are are players that we're really keeping an eye on. And that with all that said, I think that we're going to probably see a big run, a big run from Jung in 2023, maybe perhaps a first Grand Slam quarterfinal, semifinal. The sky seems to be the limit for her and she seems to be moving at a quite a nice pace. So by, by 2030, I would expect her to be very much in the hunt for a slam title, if not more. Shout out to early October, Jung, uh, Jung Chin Wen, born October 8th, 02. I'm October 6th, so near and dear to my heart. Um, yeah, she's 20 Someone years born old. in 2002. Hold on. All right, I'm back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> My little brother was born April 25th, 02. Like, this is devastating to me. Someone is having more pro success than my younger brother. Puts things in perspective, folks. Here's the big numbers 2020, Jung Chin Wen, 38 and 8 overall. 2021, Jung Chin Wen, 41 and 11 overall. Now, this season, she played primarily 125K events, tour level events. She still went 39 and 19. By her age 20, you know, going into her age 20 season, she's 36 and 25. She's won 59% of her tour level matches she's played thus far. Now, it's not quite what Sabalenka maybe was doing those first three years, but it's pretty darn close. And let's say I would be willing to venture more than not that she wins more than two-thirds of her matches next season. I think we both would place a wager that she would finish higher, not lower than her current ranking of number 27. And, you know, again— 
Jung Chin Wen won her first 10 finals in professional matches. Did it at the 15K, progressed to the 25K level, 60K level, wins 125K earlier this year. Loses her first final, actually, was her WTA Tour final 5-5 five and five loss to Samsonova in Tokyo, one of those sneaky fun matches from the 2022 WTA season. It's the weapons. It's just that, again— you have no doubt about the tennis Jung Chin Wen is capable of playing, whether it was watching her, you know, during uh, that run, obviously, in Roland Garros, beat Simona Halep in three sets, hit her off the court to follow that up with the dominant performance, albeit against a slightly hampered Alize Cornet. And then she did the seemingly impossible. She won a set off Iga at the French Open. And, you know, what's even more impressive than that, to me, DK, is how she followed it up. You know, winning a match in Australia this year was her first main draw slam victory, and she had to come through qualifying to do that. She then makes the fourth round of Roland Garros, third round of Wimbledon as an unseeded player, third round of the U.S. Open as an unseeded player. That's the two-thirds rule. Two and one at the event. Jung Chin Wen accomplished that. I know the record doesn't quite say that, but how she was progressing by the end of the season, you just saw her slowly coming to grips with, okay, my weapons work. I still need to get maybe a little bit quicker in the outside, but I know I need to go for my first serve because when I'm playing, or my second serve because when I'm playing on my terms, you know, I have that ability to compete at an elite level. And you look for Junction when she held 75.8% of the time this season. You know, again, the average WTA player in 2022 from a hold uh, percentage perspective held serve 71% of the time. That number for Jung Chin Wen, uh, it's a top 10 number. She ranked ninth in hold percentage at essentially age 19 throughout the course of a WTA season. It's just a non-negotiable. Like, you know you're going to have to deal with her weapons. And when I look at her break percentage, 27.6, that's a bottom 10 number. It's not great. But I don't think she has any fine, like structural issues with her return. I think she's someone who goes big, who tries to take her chances, is trying to develop that speed now with the purpose of it paying dividends later on in her career. I just see it's the complete package. I think she does move fairly well, even though I think she'll need to get a little bit stronger as any 20-year-old would early in their careers. I just don't have a lot of questions, which is crazy to say, given, again, it's really just... I mean, if you're a nerd like we are, you monitor the ITF runs, you know the background a little bit, but how quickly it translated to the highest levels this season and how frequently we really got to see it was the big thing for me. And there's obviously a difference between potential to win a Grand Slam and potential to be a star. Yeah. But Jung Chin Wen is someone who has the potential to be a star, which... Interesting. We make the case for me, please. I mean, first of all, I I saw the Harper's Bazaar photos. I'm sure you did as well. I mean, I think she's someone who is going to have a lot of, shall we say, crossover appeal. And certainly, I imagine if you're the WTA right now, you couldn't be more frustrated that all of this uh, groundwork you did to cultivate tennis in China, you finally get a star in China. And you know, you can't host any tournaments in China because of what happened. And it must be so frustrating for them because this is literally all they ever wanted was someone who could just be the next Lena. And seemingly they found her just about 18 months too late. And thankfully for her, that has that sort of 
disconnect has not affected her emotionally. She's, you know, progressing as if nothing was happening, which is certainly good for her. You wouldn't want her to be someone who's bearing the responsibility of that by any stretch of the imagination. But I think when we think of an arena Sabalenka, when we think of, you know, I think Iga Shvantec is working towards it. When we think of a Jung Chin Wen, and when we think of the next name I'm going to bring up, these are players who have the potential to be stars. And I think when we're talking about the WTA, that's in many ways what we're missing is the stars. We don't have them right now. We And I think I've said this on, before on podcasts with you is that I feel like we have potential stars, stars in two to three years. I think the closest one we have right now among the younger set is Coco Goff, who's certainly transcended uh, tennis and has become sort of a pop culture icon, but just sort of, as we've also discussed, technically speaking, it's hard to consider her the complete package right now as a player because there is still a bit wrong with the game, but certainly has the potential to be a star. A Jung Chin Wen, a Sabalenka, these are players who I think if they start winning slams are going to be, I would say certainly Jung even more than Sabalenka, as entertaining as Sabalenka is, I think there are still some things perhaps that that uh, Jung Chin will have a bit of a leg up on. But um, yeah, I think this is someone who I would re- be really, if, it's sort of the obvious, she's this, you know very much the sexy pick for someone who's looking for a new player to get invested in. I would get invested in her early and often because I Absolutely. think that she's really going to pay off over the next decade. Absolutely. Now, again, two and three in her career against the top 10, six and six against the top 20, nine and 10 against the top 50. <laughs> Wins this past year over Halep, Ostapenko, Bedosa, Kudermatova, Jabur, uh, you know, again, it's not the, it's not the, <laughs> the biggest US Open, sample size, but it's impressive. It's very impressive from someone who's again, was a teenager for the majority of this season. So yes, I agree with you. And I think she would pass the eye test as well. Watching her game, you're just like, you see the weapons. You see the pathway for success for her. All right. Three names we agree on. I feel like all the names on your list will probably be on my list. So let's keep going with yours. Who's next for you? And, and how many names do you have left, actually? I'm, I'm running out because I feel okay. like when we go through the list to – to definitively predict someone can win a slam is also, again, predicting that they're going to – a lot of them are going to make major improvements because you feel like they're not there right now. And so it's harder to predict that far into the future because you feel like, well, a lot could happen. They could get better. They could stay the same. They can get worse and they can get injured and we won't see them again in tw- in, in a few years. But I think – By the way, though, Jung Chin went to that note – January 1st, 2030, I just like mentioning these, she'll be 27. So you actually feel like, hey, she could not win a slam this decade, and maybe early in the 2030s, she could actually sneak one out, because 27 years old is the prime of one's career, and so again, that's why I think she has to be on this list, even if it's not the 2020s, and it is, and ultimately the 2030s where she gets her first title, I would bet on it long term. All right, next name on your list. I've been hard on her on this podcast so far, but I still feel like if we're looking at the top 20, someone who seems to have all of the the weaponry and all of the elements to become a Grand Slam champion, I'm still pretty high on Palapadosa. I may feel differently in 12 months based on how this Whoa! goes. It's going to be a make or break year for her. But I mean, she was someone who was very close to winning that 2021 French Open title. If she manages to convert one of those many, many, many break points that she had against Tamara Zidanecek in the quarterfinals, you have to think she was someone in a tremendous position to win her first major title. And as someone who just, again, technically not a lot wrong with her, tactically not a lot wrong. You know, there was a lot of ups and downs, a lot of physical. I mean, as we discussed earlier with the Disappointments podcast, there's nowhere for her to go but up after she performed, after how she performed in 2022, did not perform that great, and yet was still very much in the hunt to make the WTA finals despite a mediocre season, sort of like a beta Sabalenka in that way. So 
again, someone who has the potential to be a huge star on the WTA tour. We, you know, that next Sharapova label bandied about when she was younger, something that was certainly a thorn in her side. I think something that now she would be willing to embrace if she starts, you know, really collect, collecting the major hardware. And she's someone who, again, like a Sabalenka, can, I believe, overpower an Iga Sviantec and sort of hit through her. We got to start seeing that. I mean, obviously, Sabalenka has been able to do it already. We got to start seeing Bedosa sort of rack up these big wins. Hopefully, she seems to be having a good offseason with Sabalenka. They kind of, you know, inspire each other. The, the mojo rubs off on one another. They both, you know, come on to 2023 with the uh, the onslaught of the extroverts. I feel like the introverts have had it too easy for the last year and a half. So we need we need some of the uh, the the wacky personalities to really shine in 2023. And with that said, I think that Palabados is still someone who is very much in the hunt right now to win a Grand Slam. And I, again, Next year, I might feel very different, but I, I still think this next 12 months are going to be quite instructive in terms of what we can expect from Paola over the next decade. My mind is blown. Bedosa was not on my list. Now, she was, in the, she was in the just missed category, and I've got a, a loop of players who I think could maybe, maybe, maybe sneak one out. Although, I just think Bedosa kind of epitomizes what I view tier two in, in that I think she's really good at a lot of things. I don't know what she's elite at. Like, I think Chin Wen has elite power. I think Sabalenka has elite power. Iga's just elite at everything. Athleticism, total package, whatever. Bedosa, statistically, her best season, 72.7% hold percentage. That was a top 20 number, but it's not top 15. It's not top 10. Break percentage, 44.3. Yes, that's a top... 20-ish number. That's really a top 15, top 10 sort of number, but we've seen it regress the past two years, 38% last year where she returned really well. And again, that's top 20, but not top 10, 36% this year, still top 25, but not top 10. I think Bedosa is very good at a lot of things. Do you think she possesses elite power to overwhelm people from the baseline? I think it is definitely a relentless onslaught. I think if you don't have your best day, like it does require best days to beat Paula Bedosa, but I just don't see her ceiling as as high as some of the other players out there right now. I mean, look, certainly there are players with more power than her. We saw her in Australia get hit off the court by Madison Keys, which was pretty much a big, you know, a halt to the momentum that she had carried into that portion of the season. But we have to remember that things are still very new for Palapados. I mean, she was ranked 79 in January two years ago. I mean, this is someone who spent much of 2021 building up and then 2022 trying to somehow maintain yet improve. And I think it was a bit of a sophomore slump for her all told. And so with that said, I think that next year, again, is going to be very instructive. You know, I think that right now, just based on all that she brings to the table, just, you know, in a in a vibes sort of way. She's someone who would be that potential next, you know, talent. Someone who isn't perhaps, if she doesn't have that insane firepower, certainly has the technical consistency where things, you don't look at a shot on Bedosa, perhaps maybe except the serve, where you feel like things are going to really break down in a, in a catastrophic way. Whereas again, you compare her to a Coco Golf and you think, well, that forehand's definitely not going to win a slam. So I certainly give her more ups at this point than a Palapadosa. So I, I bet than a Coco Golf, I should say. So I, I, I'm still very high on her. I feel like I've watched her play a lot. I've certainly watched her play a lot more than Jung Jin Wen. And so I feel like at this point, I'm, I'm personally quite invested in the idea of her winning a Grand Slam by 2030. And I think that of the players she's competing around, she, she's not demonstrably worse than those ranked above her right now. And so it, with that said, it feels like still very plausible that she wins a slam within the next year and a half. But if she really doesn't, then this, she's someone who can leave that list very quickly.
Yeah, I guess, again, I, to me, it's tier two. I think she's going to be really good for a really long time. And again, four and six versus the top 20 this year, 12 and five last year. I just don't know if, like, quarterfinals, semifinals, finals. If she gets a Chinwen, Sabalenka, Iga, back to back to back, do I see her winning a three match run like that? I know she did it at Indian Wells last year. Obviously, played exceptional stuff in Guadalajara as well. I'm just not quite sold quite yet. But I see your argument. Again, I, I have her tier two of just like she's going to be in that conversation in the quarterfinals for years to come where she's just in see, those finals weekends. Yeah, I have her all or nothing. I feel like she's okay. either going to be tier one or it's going to regress. And we might we might really forget about Palabados over the next uh, couple of years because see, she's someone who really could really just roll back. and We won't really remember what she I had done. Oh, can you remember when she made that? You know, it's so, not just so yeah. not to interrupt you, but can you explain that to me? Because it's rare that we disagree so much about a player. And like for me to I'm literally making the exact opposite case. So run me through that. The idea of a player either peaking no, or rolling back. No, no, back. why you think she'd drop off. Like, I just, I think her tennis foundationally, I don't see that sort of dip for her. Like, ever. Because I think we already, in many ways, saw her hit a wall this year and maybe perhaps be comfortable with the way she was playing and maybe wasn't overly panicked about needing to get better. Now, obviously, this is someone who has dealt with mental health struggles, and maybe it's in her best interest to not get overly upset if she's not losing these, if she's not figuring out how to win these matches. But I think she's someone who will be, as of right now, has a good team around her, is very happy with the boyfriend, perhaps soon to be fiance, uh, Juan Betancourt. You know, at least right now, you know, you think of like a Sloane Stevens, for example, someone who sort of just regressed, you know, got to number three, you know, but Bedosa got to number two, and then it's been a lot of, you know, 30 to 40, a good result here and there. You know, I think that does happen. I feel like on the WTA, you've had a lot of players in the past hit these phenomenal results. I think of Adira Zvonareva, which is what, who I've been thinking about a lot in light of Onjavor's back-to-back Grand Slam finals. I think you can only hit the wall so many times before you start to slide back into mediocrity and a bit more mediocre than this sort of, I guess, top 15, 20 hypothetical that you sort of have her occupying for the next decade. All right. I, I think that's fair. I guess for me, why tier two means, yeah, like eight to 15 range. I feel like that's the floor for Bedosa moving forward. I guess you suppose like that was the wall she hit this year and she still finished the year 13th. I feel like this was what we'll see. This is the lower tier, you know, Q1 in terms of results on the lower end. We'll see through her, from her throughout the course of her prime, but 21 years old, she'll be 32 come January 1st, 2030. Uh, I, again, Tier two for me, but fair. All right. Any other names on your list? Are you ready to dive in? No, I'm ready to dive in. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. All right, I have five names left for you. We can go through them a little bit quicker than we've gone through these first, however many we've done so far. I'm surprised Coco Goff isn't on your list because you look for what Coco Goff has accomplished. Obviously, still just 18 years old. She reaches her first slam final here this season, puts together a top eight year where she qualifies for her first tour final. She rises to world number one in doubles as well for whatever it's worth. And just, again, for Coco Goff, majority of her career, 145 tour-level matches, according to Tennis Abstract. They've all come aged 18 or younger. DK, what's her win percentage? Hmm. Uh, 
Um, well, it's probably not 78. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say 61. 64%. Right, That's freaking bad. good. And again, you look for Goff, who has made a Grand Slam final already in her career. Now, there's only the three tour-level finals. I get that. But obviously, a wave of quarterfinals here this season. She's reached second weeks at the U.S. Open, at Wimbledon, at the French Open. I don't remember if she's done it in Australia yet or not. I don't think she has, but I would be willing to bet very likely that at some point she will make a second week at the Australian Open and again, it's the consistent improvements I think I've seen from Goff. Yes, we know the forehand is a vulnerability against elite pace, but I think she continues to get more comfortable moving forward. I think as a mover, if you're saying who is the best mover on the WTA Tour, Coco Goff has to be in that conversation now, and it's only going to get better as we approach January 1st, 2030, where, by the way, January 1st, 2030, Coco Goff, 25 freaking years old. So she may legitimately actually be a 2030 tier one WTA talent. Like she, I would think we would bet more likely than not that she will be a tier one WTA 2030 talent, which is just nuts to freaking say out loud. But I just like with, with the results we've seen thus far in her career, again, I've done the math. It's not Sellis, Hingis, Serena, Sharapova, elite of the elite teenagers in WTA tour history level, but like... It's kind of on the Ennin tier. It's kind of on the Kleisters tier, DK, of what they were doing up to their age 18s. Like, I'm betting on Coco Goff. I would put her firmly in this list. Kim Kleister is just rolling in her grave when you think of that <laughs> technique up against Coco Goff's. I mean, come on. I mean, listen, I love Coco. I think she's a tremendous value add. I think she is very much a star with through almost nothing besides just her charisma, personality, the way that she speaks. She is just a tremendous personality, probably the best personality on tour right now. And I and I love her for it. But unfortunately, I also have eyes. And I feel like that that's something that really holds me back from going all in on her because, yes, yeah, she's definitely probably the best athlete right now on tour other than Iga Shriantek. She's got a great backhand. She's got a great serve. The good volleyer. The good, yeah. <laughs> and people don't talk enough about that, that she's a really yeah. good volleyer. But um, the forehand is bad. It's not good. And it was exposed in pretty much every major moment of 2022 that she was in. The forehand was exposed, whether that was at the French Open final, whether that was at the U.S. Open quarterfinal against the Caroline Garcia, a match that I fully expected Coco to walk away with because she is in many ways a superior competitor just mentally than a Car Caroline Garcia. And yet we saw technique win out you know, in that sort of horse race between Goff and Garcia. Garcia goes on to win the WTA finals. Goff doesn't win a match. Does she win a set? I mean, I was there. It was just brutal. I don't even, I think she maybe won one set in doubles. It was just, it was not good. And it was, again, one of those really watershed moments where you feel like, what is going to happen in the next year? Is this, you know, you, you just hit such a monumental wall. Do you have the temerity to rebound. And I think if anyone can, it's her, because I think in many ways she is very grounded as much as she is competitive. But if I'm looking at the the vitals of, again, a Pala Bedosa versus a Coco Golf, I'm much more confident in Bedosa's ability to win seven straight matches than I am in Coco right now, just because it's, it's the forehand is a liability. It is not good. So you're right. She's got the biggest vulnerability of any player on my list of tier one talents. You're right. Yeah. That forehand, absolutely. But it's too. And it's the one. forehand. I mean, you go back to Nick Balotelli. Yeah. The why did Anna Kornikova not win a slam? The forehand. And I loved watching Anna Kornikova's forehand. To be fair. 
Yeah, look, for me, it's A, do I bet Coco Goff is going to be the very best version of herself barring an injury? Absolutely. Whatever Coco Goff's ceiling is, I'm betting on Coco Goff the human, which already proven to be tremendous as only 18 years old, to reach that ceiling as a WTA player. Part B, and Bedosa will be the comparison here because we've already brought her up, I think Goff does things that are elite. She is an elite athlete. Her backhand is elite. I think that first serve, she held 72% of the time, but perhaps more importantly, she won 66.3% of her first serve points. And, you know, that 66.3 number on the higher end for uh, players moving forward. I just think she has elite traits, that ability to take use her speed to take time away by moving forward. She can play on her terms. And then we see the defensive skills as well. I think plan A will continue to improve. Plan B, plan C, plan D will be there as well for her. Now, to your point, Iga in particular is just going to be the bane of Coco Goff's existence, maybe for the duration of her career, because Iga Sviantek is structurally built to disrupt the one thing that Coco Goff hates most, which is high and heavy to that forehand and a backhand down the line to keep Coco honest from cheating over on that ad side. And again, That is absolutely a structural issue. And the Garcia overwhelming power, there are definitely players who can play with overwhelming power to that Coco Goff forehand. That said, I am betting on Coco Goff figuring that out the way she has continued to figure out all the other things over the course, not only of this decade, but the next decade and a half. Like, I am betting on Coco Goff the human along with the other elite traits to just find seven wins once. Like she's got what, maybe 60 slams left, 15 more years of slams. Like you're telling me she can't get one of the next 60? I don't believe it. I mean, all it takes is talk about 15 minutes for Sabalenka. All it takes is a bad stretch off that forehand side and the match goes pear-shaped. I mean, to make that French Open final, she got to play Sloan, and Martina Trevisan in the quarters and the semis. I don't know if that's necessarily going to be the draw that she gets again. That sort of seems like the moment. And we've seen a lot of like bad uh, runner-up performances or first Grand Slam final performances in the in the last couple of years or the last decade. I'm I'm apt to say the Goffs was among the worst. Just sort of the misses that Goff was hitting in that match. It was just. I mean, I don't know. Structurally, I don't know if Goff has gotten significantly better. She's gotten stronger. She's gotten perhaps maybe mentally tougher, if that's even possible. I mean, I think she's someone who's really able to um, hold herself very well, even when things are going wrong. Although she did, you know, certainly seemed to really hit her at the end of the uh, the week in Fort Worth. How could it not? I mean, losing six matches. But I mean, I don't know. Are we more likely to see uh, Coco Goff holding a Grand Slam trophy or are we more likely to see her inaugurated into the Senate? I just feel like we're at that point where I feel like I would I would certainly vote for Coco Goff to like r- make policy because <laughs> I have that much confidence in her ability and her aptitude. But I, I just don't know from a tennis perspective if she's really even found her calling. I feel like we're just go. I feel like Coco is someone who has so much potential in so many other things that perhaps even dwarf her tennis. Like she could be a designer. She could be a personality. She could be a pundit. She could be a politician. I feel like there are just so many avenues for her that almost, we might almost, this might almost be the situation where in like 30 years, we'll look back and be like, remember when Coco Golf used to play tennis? That's weird. Now she's the president. Like it might just be that kind of like turn for her because she just is so charismatic and such a great speaker and just so wise beyond her years. And I hate to give her that much. I feel like I'm almost being patronizing in a way, but it's just, 
I really am very impressed by her in every way until she hits that forehand. And I'm like, ah, I don't know about that. So that's sort of where the, the conundrum continues for Coco Golf, the Coco conundrum, if you will. Did I convince you she should be tier one or no? Are you adding her to the DK tier one or no? No, she's definitely, I would say she's tier two. And I think she has more longevity to be in that eight to 15 range versus a Bedosa. I feel like she's someone because of all of the other gifts. I mean, this is someone who is a top eight player in spite of a glaring weakness in perhaps the most important shot in the game. It just speaks to the strength of everything else. But then at the same time, the fact that she hasn't been able to do more is, again, a testament to the the glaringness of the glaring error. It's just it's 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 really it's a it's a it's a puzzler. And you wonder what it's going to take. I mean, to really fix it. I mean, it's one thing to just predict that it'll get better. It's another thing to say, well, what can she do? I mean, we saw what Arena Sabalenka was able to do with her serve. She got someone in to biomechanically fix it. I mean, she went the nuclear option. And I think Coco is really going to need to do that because, and it's part of why I have a bit of pause over some of the next generation girls, whether it's the Fervatova sisters, sort of that, that Moritoglu forehand technique. Not a fan. It, it does not seem to hold up long term in a way that I do think a Jung Chin Wen, a Sabalenka, just sort of that the rigidity is really necessary. And we don't get that from this sort of postmodern uh, technique. Interesting. Now, these are all things to explore. Well, this is where I wish we were live radio so we could throw it to the people. Who are they more tier one talented? To all Bedosa. of my fan. Yeah, Paula Pedosa <laughs> or Coco Goff. And so maybe we'll do a Twitter poll when this pod comes out later today. All right. Get a lot of play- angry people. <laughs> yeah, two players. And we can rapid fire if you'd like. I mean, go as long as you want. I have no time constraints. You tell me. I know you've got some things coming up today. Amanda Nisimova. Do you have her on the tier one list? Because certainly slam semifinalist, the power tennis she's capable of playing, she would fall into that Serena Williams power tennis country club category. You look at the record for her this season, very quietly 33 and 14 overall, perhaps most impressively nine and eight against the top 20, four and three against the top 10. We know how good her best can be. Go watch the Australian open run for her this season where, you know, again, she played really well in beating Benchich, in beating Osaka. Played a really fun match against Barty as well. She's got the goods. Like, she has the weapons. Now, she's not the best mover, but she doesn't need to be because when she makes contact with the ball, when her feet are set, it can be that exceptional. I think sometimes the best comparison for Anisimova might actually be Carolina Pliskova, DK. I'm curious what you think about that and if you think she's a tier one talent. Wow, two people who'll never win slams. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, Listen, I think to win a Grand Slam, and I think Pushkova is actually interesting in that respect. What and the point I'm about to make is that I think in order, to win a, in order to win a Grand Slam, it's not enough to have chances. You also have to be a little lucky. And I think yeah. through the career arc of an, Amanda Inesimova thus far, she has proven to be profoundly unlucky in ways yeah. that are both tragic and also just you know unfortunate. I mean, whether it's the you know the loss of her father and what was otherwise her a breakthrough season when she was so close to winning um, that match over Ash Barty at the French Open. You know, even this year, you know, really getting on top of uh, Simona Halep in that second set and then just sort of fading, you know, coming to the U.S. Open, bl- playing, I believe, on a broken toe, if not a broken foot. There was some kind of broken element to the lower body that she played through and then was not able to, you know, obviously didn't perform well and loses. And so I think she's someone who is to the eye, someone who you would obviously say is is a top talent and yet there seems to be a lot like Plushkova things tend to just go wrong for her the forehand is a bit issuous if not as pronounced as um as Coco Goff's it's still a bit of a problem and I think mentally you know there are still some hiccups we don't you know if 
you know, if if Coco Goff could hit as well as Amanda and if Amanda could think as well as Coco, I think they would be the top two players in the world because I think that, you know, those two things would sort of make up for each other's weaknesses. But I think, yeah, with Amanda right now, it's hard to, you know, again, she's someone who's going to have to get probably a little bit tougher and someone who has to get a little bit luckier. And and right now, I it's hard to predict it's hard to predict that someone will just get luckier because that seems like something that's hard to hard to predict. So no, I, I when I looked at her, I actually went on the WTA's list of under 22s. And obviously she's very much at the top of that list number, the third ranked uh, woman under the age of 22 behind Iga and Coco. So for projecting out into the future, she's certainly someone who I would imagine be contending for top titles. But right now, I, I did not immediately think of her just because she's someone who could be great when she's having a great run. And then it kind of all falls apart for her. So it's 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 tough to predict that one. She has elite weapons. There's no doubt about that. You're right. She has not had luck throughout her season. But if that changes or if she just regresses back to the mean, you feel like she's certainly going to rip off a top 10 season, right? Get to that threshold at some point. Just has the game to do so. Has already racked up, again, significant wins early in her career. <sighs> I mean, again, extraordinarily young as well for Amanda Nismova. You look for her January 1st, 2030. She will be 28 years old. She's one of the border names, but I threw on her just because, again, I've, I've seen her play her best tennis in biggest stages, and she's someone who's willing to go down swinging. Now, can she be healthy enough to do it seven times in a row? That's the biggest question I have, um, but... I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt that, again, the health, the luck is going to regress to the mean, and that we're going to see it. What about Rabakina in a similar vein? She's obviously already got one. Do you think she gets a second? With that power tennis, I should say, is the similar vein. Yeah, I mean, I have to say yes. I mean, it's I hard. It's it's crazy to say that now just because she had such a meh six yeah. months after winning Wimbledon. But, I mean, again, we, we, would, we would often compare Sabalenka to Rabakina you know, Rebakin in many ways is just the refined version of Sabalenka. The technique is simpler. Mm-hmm. The mindset is more steady. She doesn't have the, the sort of mental ups and downs that you would expect of a Sabalenka. And it all paid off at Wimbledon. She had a very efficient run to that title. Just dismissed Simona Halep, who was playing really great tennis up to the semis. And then, you know, kind of overcomes, you know, the the gimmicky silliness of an Onjabor in the final and just sort of hits through her. And that, that third set is really not even that competitive. So I have to think, yeah, she's... Her, Ludmilla Samsonova, you know, these sort of this, the uh, classically trained ball strikers or someone are players that I would be more apt to um, predict big things for just because, you know, you look at some of these lists of players and you think, oh, there's just so much wrong with them. Right? It's like there's someone's missing this. Someone's not as powerful. Someone's weapon is not, you know, someone's forehand's not as good as it should be. So I feel like for a Rybakina, a complete player. And if she can get her head back on for 2023, yeah, I do predict that uh, things will continue to go well for her. Held 78.2% of the time that ranked third amongst top 50 players on the WTA tour. The other big thing, I know her break percentage, 30.5% ranked 42nd this year, but structurally the forehand's not too big. The backhand's gorgeous. I think she's a way better athlete than you expect someone that powerful and that tall to be on. Like, I think she's a great athlete. I think she's a willing volleyer. The volleys themselves have to get better, but I think instinctually she has that skill set. I agree with you. I don't think we've seen Rabakina's best tennis quite yet. And again, just to stick with this theme here, Elena Rabakina going to be 30 years old, January 1st, 2030. So this decade will feature the prime of Rabakina's career, may have already with her winning that title. Two other former Grand Slam champions on my list, and then we can get to the honorable mentions rapid fire to end the show. Bianca Andreescu. 
I saw enough this year in the matches that she played. And every time you come on the show, we play good win, bad loss with Andrescu. So we don't have to do it again today unless you'd like to from this season. But I saw enough this year from Andrescu, who for what it's worth, played 33 matches. Second most of her career behind the 45 she played in 2019. But was healthy enough in some pockets of the season to have me encouraged. She got more clay court tennis under her belt. I think we all agree her game translates across surfaces. She's also got the main character energy. She's been there. She's won that Grand Slam title. I think in her head, she still believes she can be the best player in the world. January 1st, 2030, she'll be 29 years old again. This is the decade which will feature the prime of her career. We've seen her go seven across once before. I think she has at least one more run of seven straight wins in her. I think she wins another Grand Slam title. She's on my tier one list. What say you? Interesting, because yes, I think in many ways when she when she came back and made the finals of Miami, it felt like that main character energy was back, and it felt had like returned had, exactly, and nothing had changed, and she was just going to be you know back to where we expected her to be, and not not too dissimilar to a Garbini Muguruza has just been sort of absent from the discourse. I think she's played enough that we would have expected her to be a bigger part of the conversation in the last couple of years, the last couple of months. And um hasn't happened. I mean, there were some matches where I really felt, okay, this is a turning point. She's going to really get on a roll, whether it was the the final uh, in Bad Omberg against Caroline Garcia. And again, talk about Garcia stealing the mojo of all these girls that we were expecting big things from. I mean, just it, you know, Two losses to Garcia, whether it was in Bad Omberg or at the U.S. Open. That was another match where I felt, okay, this is her moment to really, you know, put together a comprehensive slam run. It doesn't happen. You know, again, she's someone who I think time is on her side in a way, perhaps. that You know, that she's someone who there isn't enough structurally wrong with the game that she doesn't have to make wild improvements. But she's got to – the same issues persist. She's got to be – you know, physically healthy and mentally focused. And it's been hard to kind of get both of those things. I mean, this is someone who skipped the first four months of 2022 because to kind of address mental health struggles, which is fair enough and great. But I think this is something that's, um, you know, we're, we're, we're running, we're not that we're running out of time, but it just feels like we're wasting time. Someone who could have been, you know, really competing for, for major titles, someone who did not really, who overscheduled, frankly, in many, in many ways in 2019, who probably shouldn't have played as often as she played and then ends up getting, you know, catastrophically injured at the end of 2019 and really has not been the same in many ways. So all of which to say, certainly hope that this is someone who's able to figure it out. But I kind of expected there was going to be a bigger splash from her. We're not used to seeing Bianca Andreas to just be okay. Mm-hmm. She, had, she had an okay year. Either she's amazing or completely off the board. This was just okay. So that in that way, it wasn't like she was a main character this year, which is very off-brand for the Canadian. Well, let's do it. Good win, bad loss. One last time. 13 losses, 20-13 overall this year. Sabalenka, three sets, Stuttgart. It was, yeah, for, it was her first tournament back. No, that was a, that was a good good loss. Yeah. Um, Pagula, five and one, Madrid. Mm, I would say. <laughs> I mean. Here we go. Yeah. I don't We've know. We've had this debate I mean, already. Not again, bad. Like, fine. I would say it's fine. It was her second It was a bad back. loss that for that week. I would say if she lost to her again in October, maybe again, you know, Pagula's really, you know usurped her, but that was probably a bit more of a, a closer one where you would have thought that that Andreescu would have figured that one out. So probably a, a an okay to bad loss. Iga six and zero Rome. I mean the score line is bad. I mean the no, fact that you're she wrong. That was a good to... loss because that first set was exceptional. 
And then she just couldn't sustain it. It's a two out of three set match. Yeah, but okay. So, you know what? We won't go through the full list, but the names, just so you all know, Benchich, Garcia, Rabakina, Rogers, Chinwen, Garcia again, Goff, Pagula, forget the Golubic match in the BJK Cup. Like, yes, did she get the big defining wins this year? No, she did not. But she played a lot of the big matches close. And I guess to the big theme is I saw enough that, like, Andrescu's going to be 29 in 2030. Like, she's got plenty of time. She's 22 years old right now. Another player who hasn't had the best of luck, DK, but if things shift even a little bit, the tennis is there. Like, the tennis has never been the question. Bold of you to assume that she'll keep playing till 29. I mean, she's yeah, someone who maybe could fair. be done at 25, and, and we might not even see her again. I mean, I think the But if she's that- done at 25, doesn't that endorse the scenario that she won another slam? Because I think she's – I don't think she'll oh, no. end until she gets the ending she wants. And I just don't think this is the term she goes out on. I don't know. I mean, but listen, it was a great set of players that she lost to, but those are players that she used to beat or the kinds of players that she used to beat, if not literally those players. And I think, again, tennis is a perception thing. And I think Andreescu, had she been able to maintain that 2021 Miami momentum, she would have always kind of been able to stay – at an elite level, she really has to rebuild. And she had a lot of opportunities this year to rebuild that sort of myth. And if anything, it kind of reinforced the idea that she was no longer a tier one player at this particular time. Could she be in the future? Certainly. But right now, I would not put her in the tier one. All right. Fair enough. Last one, Naomi Osaka. Does she get another one? Yes or no? I mean, she's been doing that – uh, press blitz for her book, her children's book that came out. And she didn't look like she was like gearing up for the Australian Open in a way. And she gave kind of a cagey answer about like when to, when we w- could expect her to be back on court and that, oh, you know, she'll get the itch and, you know, we'll expect to see her soon. And I don't know if she specifically said Australia, but it felt like, I don't know, it just felt like she was kind of in a new phase of life in many ways. So I don't know. It was a strange one. It just, I didn't get the vibe that this was someone who was sort of in the midst of this, you know, an, an intense preseason and she was taking a break from that to kind of, you know, promote her book. She seemed like someone who was like, and I used to play tennis and this is the book I wrote. Like, it just felt like it was a weird um, energy from her. Mm-hmm. Um, she seemed happy enough. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't mean to dispute that, but it's certainly obviously based on her talent and ability. I mean, this is someone who we thought was really just going to run the table, uh, in 2021, you know, a, a very different timeline with, uh, Andreescu and Osaka all kind of continuing the momentum that they had built up at the beginning of two years ago already that didn't end up happening. So, I mean, <sighs> She's someone who perhaps could come back really at any time and put it together and win a slam. But again, this was a, a not a fantastic, you know, last year's Andreescu was this year's Osaka, someone who had a great Miami open run and not much else. And so it was, it was baffling, to be honest. You just kind of felt like she was going to get it back together. But she's someone who played pretty much a full year and never really, you know, got back into her, the rhythm that we would expect of her. And so... <sighs> I certainly think she can win at least one more slam, but she'd have to kind of get back on court and really recommit herself to doing that. I don't know if she's that interested in doing that right now. No, I mean, it's absolutely – that's the question. I mean, again, this is a player who won back-to-back Australian Open, U.S. Open titles twice. Like, come on now. That's ridiculously impressive. She's still just 25 years old. Um, You do – or maybe 26 now, but I think 25. Um, And, yeah, I just – I just think there's one more left. I, I just really do. I just I, I refuse for this to be the note 
that things end on for Naomi Osaka. I still think her serve is the best serve in women's tennis when she's playing her best tennis. The backhand is obviously an extraordinary weapon, and she just has a degree of confidence knowing I know my game can be better than anyone else's, having been a four-time slam champion. But look, those are the eight names that reached my tier one category. Again, Sabalenka, Iga, Chinwen, Goff, Anisimova, Rabakina, Andrescu, Osaka. Let's go through the honorable mentions very, very quickly here. Just I'm going to give you names. You tell me yes or no. Here's my too early category. Do these players belong here? Too early to put them on this list. Clara Tossin. Yes. But belong, like just think about the power, right? Yeah. No, I yeah. think, listen, based on what she was able to do at the end of last year into the beginning of this year, if she's able to you know, she's someone who needs a, probably a quicker court, and but I think she's someone who really can catch fire and do well, but she's got to stay physically healthy and kind of rebuild the momentum that she lost after the injury. Absolutely. Fruvertova is too early. <sighs> See, I don't know. Again, it's it's that forehand issue, when, yeah. and we're really going to we're really gonna have to reckon with that technique if and when it continues to fail. Yeah, I agree. Too soon for Alicia Parks. I need to see a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, this is like a talk yeah. about the Ben Shelton theory. I mean, yeah, that was just a, that was a troll to you. All right, yeah. promising <laughs> stars, Radakanu, just misses for me. Just? I think, well, it's just like, <laughs> yeah, okay, fair. Look, I mean, look, this is someone who won 10 straight matches and won a slam. It is hard to reconcile yeah. someone who did that. And is still a teenager. In a, in a, in a not totally unimpressive field yeah. beat kinds of players who you think maybe could beat her. Certainly a Shelby Rogers, a Belinda Bencic, a Maria Sakari. I mean, these were not, you know, nobodies. I mean, I would argue that her run to the final was certainly perhaps better than Coco's in a way. And For we certainly sure. have more, more uh, confidence in Coco's ability to do it again than, and then in Emma. And yet, I mean, it's just, I, I wrote about this uh, heading into 2023, who is, who, for whom is 2023 most consequential? And I said both Raducanu and Leila Fernandez, because I feel like this is going to be the year which we may really forget about them. And I think Raducanu is still getting some grace because this is still a year removed, but she was really in no danger of even coming a little close to replicating what she did at that US Open. I mean, when she made, I think the it was at the quarters in DC. It was like, oh my God, she won two straight matches. And one of them was against, you know, Camila Osorio in like three hours. It took her to beat her. So, and that was like a big, you know, a big moment for her. And yet, you know, in the, in the, in the string of things, but I think um, in the scheme of things. So no, you know, I'm more like, if we're going to talk about someone who is a one and done, I'm more likely at this point to say Emma. And I was, I was pretty high on her after she won the open, but it's yeah. been a pretty much doldrums ever since. You brought up Layla too soon with all the injuries still though on the list of promising names to watch. We're not even going to have the Kennan conversation, but I mean, she won a slam and she's still very, very young. So for whatever it's worth, maybe that Sonia Kennan is still in there. Just missed the list. Are we sure Ben Chich isn't going to win a slam? Again, she's one of those players where you look at, we just think, oh, there's, but there's something wrong with you, you know, like not in a, <laughs> sure. not in a bad way, but just someone who is, I mean, if you're getting overpowered by Emma Raducanu, that's a problem. And then someone who just, I think technically is a bit too mechanical off the ground to really be a consistent force. You know, she's someone who's an Olympic champion. So in many ways, you know, if she retires and that's her big, you know, claim to fame, that's a pretty big one. You know, people will really remember the fact that she was an Olympic gold medalist. Can she win seven matches and win a slam? Oh, I'm less confident in that. Very well said. Ostapenko? Always. <laughs> yeah, has to be on. Samsonova? Nine and a half more slams to go. No, I I mean, um, Samsonova, yes. I was very confident. Again, like a Samsonova, a Rybakina, mm -hmm. a Sabalenka, someone with just that raw power. 
I'm always going to be up on just because I think that that's something that eventually does come together over seven matches. Mm-hmm. Krachikova? Hmm. It's, you know, you could have gotten every answer out yeah. of me over Krachikova over the course of the year. Yes, definitively at the start of the year. No, definitely not by the middle. And then she, you know, plays probably the match of the year and beats Iga in Ostrava. And you think, oh, well, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, I mean, she's someone who, again, is still seems so new. She really only had one great year and then is now going to have to try to recapture that. I think the good thing for her is that she comes out of 2022 with a good amount of momentum in both singles and doubles, and that should kind of set her up for success. And she has that experience under her belt to sort of replicate it, but um, still very strange, um, her career arc, yeah. <laughs> to be honest. So it's it's... It was weird to see her win one. In many ways, it'll almost be weirder to see her win two. Yeah. Last one I throw in here, just a flyer, Kostyuk. That's another one of our shared fondness. Like, I'm not quite ready to write it off, but I need to see the bounce back. It's the Benchich conundrum again. It's just yeah. someone who's just well, lacking that much. Well, this year was so much. tough, though, personally, obviously, and just, you know, still. But sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, she's someone who really, it was an emotionally stressful, strenuous yeah. year. She really took on a lot and probably too much in my opinion. I mean, obviously I don't know how you can relate to someone who's going through something so catastrophic. I can only imagine how I would feel about it, but it's just was, you would hope again, I think in the words of a Victoria Zarenka that she's got the right people around her to really kind of help, you know, if she's really taking this, you know, taking this on how she can best, you know, channel this energy and how she can, um, how she can continue to play professional tennis. Cause it's a big ask, you know, there's a yeah. tremendous emotional, you know, um, toll being taken on her while trying to maintain this professional career at a still very young age, but um, obviously a brilliant tactician, a great tennis mind, clean, you know, technical, uh, a technically proficient player. Will she ever be strong enough to win seven matches just physically that, yeah, I don't, I'm less confident in that. Yeah, but someone who will continue to be entertaining over the next decade. I'm fairly no, confident in that. No doubt about that. Well, with that said, DK, that's all the names. That's the list I have for you. You thought this was going to be a 10-minute conversation. The shame on you. You, uh, No, I'm just kidding. Um, with all that said, final word goes to you. Is there any names we didn't hit? I don't think so. But any other final thoughts as you look at this exercise? I mean, I think it's pretty telling that we pretty much ignored most of the women who were in the top eight. Sure, <laughs> Shabur, I mean, we didn't. Shabur, Sakari, the Pagula. I mean, yeah, just sure. you players who, you know, when you think of who can win seven matches to win a slam, it's there's a lot of you know mathing that has to math in terms of just sort of physical ability, technical ability, tactical ability, mental strength predicting that some of any or all of that will get better over the next couple of years. So there's a lot of sort of mental gymnastics. And I think we're at a point now with the WTA where we're still, we're very much in flux and Mm -hmm. who is top 10 right now may not be top 10 next year. Who might not be even top, be top 20 next year. So it's hard to put in a lot of, and it feels like we've also seen a lot of those players have chances and you feel like, well, if this is what they turned in now, how will they be able to fix that in the future and sort of seeing who has the potential most of the ones who already have not, done it to do it and fix it, fix it and do it again or do it for the first time. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a weird one, but you know, coming out of this conversation, I definitely feel a bit more heartened about the state of things and sort of the, the long-term future of the tour. There are a lot of potential really great stars. And so hopefully we get some of them shining sooner rather than later. Well, that's what I try to do here, DK, is just raise your spirits by having you on the show. So I'm glad that we accomplished that goal and I appreciate 
you as always sharing your insight with us and our listeners. A shout out as always, of course, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the <laughs> of an ending job he does day in, day out, making all of the content possible. Again, tennis-point.com, promo code is CR15. With all that said, Tears Week will continue here on this show, so be sure to tune back for the ATP conversation for of this. Who are our Tier 1 ATP talents? You can guess some of them. Can you guess all of them? Certainly, I imagine you're going to enjoy that talk. And again, plenty of off-season coverage for all of you fans here at Cracked Rackets, whether it be on this show, the college preview underway on the GSP. I know David Kane does not miss an episode of our top 10 countdown of the Division I men's and women's teams heading into 2023. Cracked interviews rocking and rolling as well. Tons of fun guests. Be sure to go check all of that out. With all that said, for the fantastic David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point. From all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell all of our listeners? And that's the break. I love it. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you, as always, my friend.